Hello and a warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer and I'm back with my co-host Mark Koskila who this week is joining me from sunny Surrey. How are things south of the Thames, Mark? Yes, they're very good. Thank you very much, Helena. Sadly, not that close to the River Thames though where I am, but who needs the river when you've got the beautiful Surrey Hills? How about yourself? How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Looking out over the sunny Barbican, it's looking particularly lovely. Um, so we will kick off with some news from the last week. One thing that's been dominating the news this week, which we can't overlook, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely. The immediate impact of this is clear and the Director General of the World Health Organization has released a statement highlighting deep concerns over the escalating health crisis in Ukraine resulting from the invasion. $3.5 million from the organization's Contingency Fund for Emergencies has been released initially to purchase and deliver urgent medical supplies. And the repercussions for the pharma industry are significant too, particularly when it comes to clinical trials. There are currently at least 680 ongoing or planned industry-sponsored clinical trials in Ukraine covering a range of therapy areas, but particularly in the area of oncology. Only time will tell how these are impacted and what the industry will need to do to ensure a continuation of their clinical trial pipeline. Countries such as India have also raised concerns about the potential disruption of drug exports to both Ukraine and Russia, and the risk of potential cyber attacks and the knock-on effect on the pharma supply chain have also been stressed, so lots of considerations here. Obviously, the safety of employees and citizens is absolutely paramount, and the situation is being continuously monitored by pharma companies and other key organisations across the board. Our thoughts are obviously with everybody involved at this difficult time. Indeed they are. Moving on now to another important topic, COVID-19 vaccines. Sanofi and GSK are seeking regulatory approval for their adjuvanted protein-based COVID-19 vaccine as a primary two-dose series and a booster dose following positive clinical trial results. For example, the phase three trial revealed two doses of the vaccine have 100% efficacy in preventing severe cases of COVID-19 and hospitalizations. Final analysis of the booster trial also showed that the vaccine induced a significant increase in the neutralizing antibodies across vaccine platforms and age groups. Really impressive results there, and it'll be interesting to see how that approval pans out. And finally, biotech has been a hot topic covered by Gold recently, and there's been a further development this week with the establishment of a global biomanufacturing training hub in South Korea, or the Republic of Korea as it's formerly called, just outside Seoul. The plan is for it to serve all low- and middle-income countries wishing to produce biologicals such as vaccines, insulin, monoclonal antibodies and cancer treatments, and it comes after a successful global mRNA vaccine technology transfer hub in South Africa. So for those of you who read the latest issue of Gold, you'll have noticed that uh, Gold has a new series featuring emerging markets at the moment. And Helena, I hear South Korea might be next in the pipeline. It is definitely in the pipeline, yes. We looked at China first, we've got South Africa up next, and then that will be followed by other countries, including South Korea later in the year. So do keep an eye out. In February's issue of Gold, we highlighted a recent collaboration between the digital app certifier Orca and the Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. The pair teamed up to curate a library of regulated apps for patient and healthcare providers. Today, the CEO of Orca, Liz Ashall-Payne, joins us to discuss the digital healthcare app landscape. 
Following a transformative few years for digital health, we were keen to find out about the demands, the positives, the challenges, and what exactly makes a winning digital health app. It's a very timely topic that's well deserving of discussion. So to kick off, we asked Liz about what evidence there is that patients actually want digital health solutions. Let's hear what she had to say. So if I just start with the most basic, you know, um, how many digital health apps are being downloaded every day and has that increased? And it absolutely has. So um, pre-pandemic, we were seeing about 4 million health apps being downloaded every day. That's now increased to 5 million downloads every day. And that's about people searching for and looking for digital health apps that can help them to either stay healthy and well, manage a condition, or to support them with a health goal. Obviously, digital health is for certain situations. You know, if you're having a crisis, a heart attack, you don't want a health app. You want a hand to hold and somebody there for you. But obviously, if you're struggling, for example, I live with type 1 diabetes. I've used digital health for years, and that helps me to manage my condition and live the best life I can live. Now, um, we know as well during the pandemic that we've seen a rise of, for example, mental health conditions massively increasing. And we just don't have the um, enough capacity to respond to the current demand. What we also know is that there are about 20,000 digital health apps for mental health. And so if we can help people to find high quality digital health apps so that they can get the benefit from them and they can have the benefit when they want the benefit, when they need that intervention and they can do it in their own home, from their own mobile phone, that's got to be positive. While the positive aspects of these solutions are wide reaching, poor digital literacy and other challenges also exist. So although we currently have access to over 350,000 health apps um, and you might think, oh, well, I can just go to an app store and download a health app. Actually, the app stores don't really work in a health context. Accessing and becoming aware of these technologies is a real problem. So if you type in a word like ophthalmology or MSK into Apple App Store or Google Play, you're going to get very few results. Now, what we do is we work with different parts of the health and care system to create digital health app libraries, which are branded as the organisation that we're working with. So it might be a hospital brand and promoted to patients. But the far better mechanism is through the digital health app formularies. So in the same way that healthcare professionals and doctors use formularies to prescribe a drug, they're now using a health app formulary to pick and prescribe a technology direct to their patient's phone. And this is really critical in activating more patients to use digital health technologies. And and the thing is, just to, um, I suppose, bust some myths, um, it's really interesting. We quite often naturally assume that older populations wouldn't be interested in digital health apps. And what's really interesting is the most recent Ofcom report showed that the highest users of smartphone devices were aged 65 plus. What's also interesting is that that population um, are also interested in their health because they want to stay as healthy as they can whilst they're retired to enjoy that time. So we find that around about 71% of all people who receive a recommendation from their healthcare professional 
will go on and use that technology. And you might think that doesn't sound very high, but when you look at the conversion rate post the prescription of a drug, that sits at around about 74%. So actually, our patients and populations are really interested in using this technology. Now, what that then means is we have to put a big focus on workforce development. So I myself am a clinician. I worked in complex pediatric care, and I trained over 20 years ago. If I look at the training now, it's almost identical. Clinicians are not trained in these technologies. And if we're not trained, how can we ever recommend? So um, there's a real push now to develop the workforce that they can be aware of digital health apps, know which ones are safe, and then have a prescription infrastructure that allows for the safe deployment of these technologies. It seems like the sky's the limit in terms of the potential of digital health apps. And so we asked Liz about what kind of apps are available now and what she anticipates will be available in the future. The, the, the short answer is if you can think of a clinical need or a medical need, um, what I can tell you is that there is a product out there. There is a digital health app for that um, that, that area. Some really exciting um, areas around our health apps that can take chunks out of the pathway. And what I mean by that is apps that can offer a diagnosis, for example. So um, I'll give you an example. There's a product called Skin Vision. And Skin Vision is a health app that you use to check your moles and then um, passes that information on to a clinician who's then able to advise you as to whether you need to go and see a dermatologist. Now, if you think about the backlog at the minute for dermatology appointments and people who are waiting to have a mole checked, that could be pretty fatal if they don't get in and get a diagnosis, should it be cancer. So being able to use a technology like skin vision means that you can take a big chunk out of the process, which means that people who the people who actually need to get that care and that face-to-face can get it. And then I suppose that the area that we're starting to see emerge, which everybody's talking about, is AI and the use of AI chatbots. Now, as AI evolves, what that means is that patients will be able to access healthcare through AI um, in the future. I don't think we're quite there yet. And actually, when we look at clinical um, engagement, there's a lot of mistrust around AI because it's really difficult to understand what's happening in that black box. And so there needs to be better transparency to build trust in the system. For our last question, we wanted to get into the finer detail of Orca and find out exactly how they curate and assess the apps that they review, ultimately trying to understand what makes a high quality, clinically safe and recommendable digital health app. With so many apps on the market, it's vital that pharma companies are hitting these criteria with their digital health solutions. So let's hear what Liz had to say. So the first thing to say is that there are lots of regulations and standards and best practice guides around what good looks like. And that's on a global basis. And it's a bit of a puzzle. And the reason it's a bit of a puzzle is because, first of all, those regulations and compliance standards sit in four big domain areas. The first is data privacy. So you will have all heard of GDPR, but in there, there are other things like consent, authentication, interoperability. So data privacy is, 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 has got a lot of standards in there. The next area is then data security. So this is where 
certain ISO standards sit, EO WASP guidance, um, pen testing, penetration testing, etc. So that's in data security, encryption, all that kind of um, information. The third area, which is really jam-packed, as you would expect, is in clinical and professional assurance. So in here, we've got standards that sit around clinical safety, clinical evidence, professional assurance. Um, we also see things like medical device regulations, um, care quality commission. That's absolutely jam-packed. And the fifth area is around user experience. And this is the most lightweight of all areas, but I think we're going to see new standards and regulations emerging because at the minute it particularly focuses on usability and accessibility. Now, the reason it's a puzzle is because, first of all, it's not a static landscape. New regulations are emerging all the time. The second reason it's a puzzle is because not all of those regulations would need to be applied to every technology. So if you've got a basic technology that doesn't hold data, doesn't push data, you're not asking those questions. Equally, if you have, you need to open up a whole range of additional questions to assess the technology. And the third reason it's a puzzle is because these technologies themselves are not static. They change all the time. So as they start to incorporate new functions and features, that product then needs a reassessment because new regulations will need to be applied. Now, what we've seen over recent years is the creation of digital health assessment frameworks. So here in the NHS, we have something called the DTAC, which is the Digital Technology Assessment Criteria. And the NHS put that together as a set of assessment questions that meant if a product could answer positively to those questions, that we could feel assured and trust them. Um, now, in other countries, there are other um, digital health assessment frameworks. Now, what we've done at Orca is we've looked at the consensus across those frameworks. And what I mean by consensus is there's lots of questions that everybody wants to know the answer to relevant as to where you are on the planet. And then what we do, depending on the jurisdiction that we're working in, we then layer on top the additional criteria for that country. And the reality is it's a very complex, complicated landscape um, and most people just don't know what the rules are because it's complicated so of course pharma completely get the fact that things have got to be compliant but if you don't know what compliant means it's really difficult to do that to think about actually even before you develop these technologies and that's important because reworking a product is far more challenging than building regulations in from the beginning. And so there is an awareness challenge. And the reason it's a challenge is because it's complex, but also because it keeps changing. And that concludes our chat with Liz Ashwell-Payne from Orca. Really interesting insights there around the value of healthcare apps and important considerations for the industry when developing these digital health solutions. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, head over to our website as we recently published an article called Bridging the Digital Health Divide, which is all about how the industry can better engage less technologically confident patients with these kinds of solutions. Next up, we have an interview with Dario Safaric, the founder of Next Pharma. Based in Croatia, Next Pharma hosts a variety of conferences and online events for pharma professionals. 
Yes, we're particularly looking forward to attending their event later in the year in Dubrovnik. But before then is Next Normal, which will be streaming virtually from the 8th to the 10th of March. Ahead of the event, our assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien, caught up with Dario to get his thoughts on what the Next Normal looks like for Pharma, discuss the hot topics that are dominating the agenda, the role of the metaverse in business events of the future, and much, much more. It's a great snapshot of the subjects that matter most to Pharma right now, so let's have a listen. Dario, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining me. Thanks for asking. Uh, doing pretty well, and thanks for having me, and hi to our audience. Of course, it's lovely to have you back on with us. We obviously had you on a couple of years ago, so yeah, great to have you back. So to start with today, I want to talk about your upcoming conference, Next Normal Pharma Digital and Commercial Excellence, that is taking place virtually this March. How did this event come about? How did it first come about? And in your opinion, what really makes it different? 24 months ago, the world changed as never before. And uh, we at Next saw the tectonic change, uh, which happened and postponed our life even for May, already in February 2020. And uh, I remember that many people claimed that I'm overreacting at that time. And since then, we organized five virtual events, countless of webinars, reports, and engaged with more than 20,000 people from Pharma. I really have to say that uh, Next from, went from an event organization to a pharma platform and initiative. I would even call it a movement and collaboration platform for a better industry outlook. So we have to discuss transformation. And I'm always saying, uh, if you're going to do a thing, do it all the way. So you touch a little bit on there on transformation as one of the topics that's going to come up at the event. And I actually wanted to sort of ask you about this, because I think looking at an agenda is quite a good way of finding out what's important to people in pharma right now. What do people want to talk about? What are they interested in? So when looking at the agenda as a whole, what would you say are the hot topics of this year's conference? Well, at next, you won't see any kind of strange predictions like some others try to do it with our crystal balls, right? Uh, actually, we all know how great humans are at predicting things, right? So we don't want to be the Nostradamus of the industry. We rather consider data and facts as our fuel and based on that next designs, the outlook and agenda for upcoming events. So for March in particular, still the keyword is transformation, like you said as well, but don't call it digital, neither commercial. It's a process which always existed, but nowadays it is an accelerating snowball which gets bigger and bigger every day. Or to simplify it, it hit us hard. The hottest topic for March, which we anticipate and see, are certainly customer experience, engagement journeys to HCPs and patients, uh, real use cases for AI, and uh, a project on which I'm personally very bullish, the metaverse. And the metaverse, I think, is something we're going to come on to later. So I will hold off on that one. But yeah, very interesting to hear. So we are now arguably approaching a post-pandemic era, we hope. And obviously, this conference is called The Next Normal. So obviously, some of this transformation has already happened. But what do you think the next normal looks like for the pharmaceutical industry? Well, again, we, we really don't want to predict things. And uh, at first place, I like your question for, for the key pillars and how we see that the next normal will look like. 
and certainly we can see some patterns into which pharma is moving. On midterm, the world of tomorrow will become and welcome a new generation of people which interacts in a complete different way. They TikTok, mint NFTs, paying crypto, they are flexible and hate any kind of forced authority. And such generation will make a huge impact on the pharma industry and on any other industry. And if pharma won't adopt, this might be a huge issue. So that's on, I would say, on a midterm. On a short term, we see that the digital space of engagement is currently occupied. And that's a good thing. Since we can expect many new innovative approaches, which individual companies will take to differentiate their experiences and brand perceptions. I think that the entire industry seeks for the unique experience etiquette. You can see that etiquette in many other industries and brands. And we all know the Mercedes experience, the Starbucks experience, the Apple experience. And this is, in my personal opinion, the, the direction in which pharma devolves to go. Yeah, it's an interesting point about pharma learning from other industries. And you mentioned a couple of examples there. What industry do you think pharma could learn most from when it comes to customer experience? Very tough question, right? <laughs> well, I think that sometimes the, the best solution is, is uh, hiding the very simple answer. And uh, I'm always speaking about uh, Uber as a very good example. They, they really changed the industry of transportation and uh, many claim that, uh, for instance, at the very beginning, why Uber was so successful is that they introduced a map within the application. So a single map, which somehow uh, from a psychology uh, perspective is uh, not, it's not reducing the time of waiting for your Uber ride, but it uh, gives you the perspective that you take over the waiting, right? So it's just a psychological effect and uh, a very good particular case how experience can be delivered in a, in a very simple way. Yeah, so it doesn't always have to be loads of bells and whistles. It can be quite a simple alterational transformation that can make the difference. So moving on now, I want to talk about the event itself um, and obviously you've decided to do this first one in the year virtually and then you've got another one next 22 in Dubrovnik in May which is going to be in person. I guess I just wanted to understand from your perspective as an event organiser why did you decide to do the first one virtually and the one later in the year in person? Was it simply a play it safe kind of move or do you think there's value in having a virtual event and a physical event? Well, frankly speaking, both. <laughs> uh, in particular, the reasons behind are very simple. And uh, the first is that I personally don't expect that overseas travel, business travel, is realistic for 2022. And that is why global events still make sense uh, in a virtual space. And that is why at the end of the day, Next Normal went into that virtual, into that virtual way. Uh, maybe some interesting fact which I can mention is that currently we have uh, roughly around 26-27% of our attendees coming from North America, which only proves my statement. And the live event obviously is a vision challenge, but with every single day we anticipate it will happen in beautiful Dubrovnik on May 17 and 18. And uh, I really have to say that people are keen to meet again. And face-to-face uh, -face engagements always lead to fantastic inventions and ideas. So that's why live events are still crucial to, to happen. And uh, we are very optimistic that at the end of the day, it will happen in Dubrovnik. 
So for my final question for you, Dario, um, I want to touch on what you spoke about earlier, which is the metaverse. And this is sort of an emerging trend. Obviously, this has been around for a while, but with Facebook renaming themselves as meta last year, I think it's really risen up on the agenda of late. So what's the role of the metaverse and virtual reality in events of the future? I know I've seen some events trialing virtual networking zones, stuff like that, but I just want to get your opinion on what the future is. Meta what or everything meta, right? It's rather the first or the or the second option. Uh, either you're bullish on the metaverse or you don't know anything about it. Uh, we at Next certainly explore this space and still I can't disclose what exactly we will do, but uh, let's speak about the metaverse in general because, again, I'm very bullish on that project. Uh, first, I see that many think that metaverse equals to Facebook, and which is completely wrong. Uh, if I have to bet on a particular metaverse company, then this will be rather Microsoft since they are having a fantastic ecosystem, which is already implemented from the cloud Azure, HoloLens glasses, still business, real business adoption with Microsoft Teams as an example. However, metaverse can't be owned in any way and it might be the internet 3.0. What I personally expect is that we will see the rise of democracy over data ownership and already you have some fantastic projects like the Infinity blockchain, which is taking over the, the data to the, to the end customers. However, for a proper metaverse, you need computing power, extreme fast internet coverage, blockchain technology, VR, proper VR, and attractive hardware pricing, which will fall with new players coming. So where this can lead us in the pharma industry? It's literally limitless. In my opinion, from patient monitoring, possible triage, patient groups, discussions, forums, even clinical trials, just name it. It will be huge, certainly it will be huge, but the question is when we will see its full potential. Maybe sooner than we think, in my personal opinion, but this topic will also be discussed during the next virtual event, but also during the next live event. Yeah, fascinating to hear that, of course, the potential just isn't in events. It's the whole pharma industry as well. Thank you very much for joining me. Everyone here at Gold is really looking forward to both events. And yeah, fingers crossed that Dubrovnik can go ahead in person in May. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure again. And that sadly concludes this week's episode. A massive thank you to Liz Ashall payne Dario Safarich, and Isabel, of course, for joining us on the show and to all of the Gold team for producing such a great episode. Yes, it's been great to hear about the world of digital health apps, as well as the key industry trends from the upcoming Next Normal event. We'll be back next week with more brilliant content spanning the pharma industry. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already. And just a quick reminder to look out for the latest issue of Gold at www.emg-gold.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye from us both. See you next week.